as we were just reminded, we are returning to our study in the book of Acts um, after a long break during the Advent season. So it may serve us well to do a quick recap, um, and you may um, keep your eyes open for that. Um, Acts begins with Jesus' ascension, which was really his enthronement and coronation as the cosmic king. And in that moment, Jesus called his disciples to be his witnesses. And that's what this book is all about, uh, the earliest witnesses to Jesus' kingship and his kingdom that is coming, starting, with, uh, starting in uh, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And in, in the middle of that narrative, we encountered a, an, an, a crucial witness named Paul. Originally known as Saul, a, and a fervent persecutor of the Christian way, he undergoes a profound transformation. And it is through Paul that the gospel message reaches beyond the, uh, the boundaries of ancient Israel to Asia, to Greece and Macedonia, and slowly advancing to the ends of the earth. However, in a pivotal moment in Acts 19.21, the Spirit compels Paul to return to Jerusalem. And despite all the warnings and um, warnings about harm that await for him in Jerusalem, Paul persists on his path. And I always kind of wonder why that had to be the case, why Paul had to go back to Jerusalem instead of advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth. Nevertheless, shortly after Paul's arrival in Jerusalem, all their fears came to fruition. During a visit to the temple, some Jews from Asia Minor recognized them and convinced the temple crowd to turn against Paul. The accusation there was that Paul was teaching against the Jewish customs and laws. The crowd started beating Paul. Things got so bad that the Roman soldiers had to take Paul away. But before leaving that scene, Paul was given an opportunity to address the crowd. That is the speech that we are about to read. So let's turn our Bibles to Acts 22, verses 1 through 21. Acts 22, 1 through 20, sorry, 22. Um, you may find it on page 1732 in the Pew Bibles. Brothers and fathers, listen to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. When Paul, then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as jealous, zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as also the high, as also the high priests and the, all the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I said, I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. He replied, 
My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, then, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue to another in prison to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of the mart your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord said to me, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. This is where the Lord In his defense, Paul emphasizes his Jewishness, his language, which was the language of the Jews at the time, his bloodline, upbringing, education, and his former zeal as a persecutor of Christians. His argument convincingly paints him as deeply Jewish, and the crowd listens. Even when Paul begins talking about his encounter with the resurrected Christ, they remain they remain silent and calm. However, the atmosphere suddenly shifts when Paul mentions the word Gentiles. This single word ignites the crowd's fury. And at the heart of all this was this deeply rooted ethnocentric Jewish tradition. This Jew-first attitude that excluded all the other who were not Jewish, meaning Gentiles. This human tradition was a stark deviation from the inclusive nature of God's will. In God's covenant with Abraham, we saw this. God promised that all peoples on the earth will be blessed through Abraham's descendants, all peoples, not just Jews. And throughout the Old Testament law, in many places, God calls, explicitly calls for equality and fair treatment for non-Jewish people among Jews. But we can tell by the crowd's reaction that the exclusion of the Gentiles had already grown so strong in their culture. The tradition, the ethnocentric tradition had taken its root in that nation among the people, and it has supplanted God's word, God's will, and created a barrier that kept Gentiles at a distance. 
But this barrier was not just an abstract theological barrier. It also manifested itself in a physical structure of the temple. The temple in Acts 22 was not the original temple built by King Solomon. It was, that was destroyed by the Babylonians. This temple was known as the second temple built by the Jew, Jews who had returned from their exiles. And if we could just pull up that diagram. Um, this was the temple that Paul was standing in when he gave the speech. And this was after the renovation under King Herod. King Herod, um, under King Herod, the temple saw an extensive renovations, um, adding new features to a modest structure. Um, and one of the st- structures that was added to the temple complex was this thing called the courts of the Gentiles. And if we could go to the next slide, and the striking feature of this court was a physical barrier explicitly forbidding Gentiles to come any closer to the sacred place, the inner temple. There was a physical barrier segregating Jews and Gentiles in this temple. Um, In 1871, an archaeological discovery was made, and it was a sign that, it was a warning sign that used to hang on this physical barrier. It was written in Greek so that the Gentiles could easily read it and understand it, and it cautioned them against proceeding any further under penalty of death. Interestingly enough, the first temple, the, the one that was built by King Solomon, didn't have separate courts for Jews and Gentiles. It only had one court that both people, all peoples, shared. The first temple, the layout of the first temple, reflected the inclusive nature of God's vision for the world. However, over time, the ethnocentric tradition of Judaism overshadowed that vision. And Herod's temple, as you can see behind me, with this segregating barrier, manifested that stark deviation from God's vision. In Acts 22, Paul's defense is not just about his Jewish heritage. It's bigger than that. Paul's defending God's inclusive vision. Paul's going against, he's challenging that ethnocentric tradition that was not at all in line with God's will for his people. And the crowd's sudden fury was not because of what Paul said necessarily. It's because Paul's story, his transformation and subsequent missions to the Gentiles exposed just how utterly unbiblical this tradition was. They were offended by their own doing. Now that is an act of witnessing. It's an act of witnessing reminding people of the inclusive nature of God's plan for the world. And this morning as we reflect on Paul's speech, we are confronted with the same sort of challenging question. The question goes something like this. Have we, perhaps unwittingly, um, upheld any human traditions that act as barriers in our lives. Let me say that again. Have we upheld any human traditions that function as barriers, keeping people, certain people, at bay? We have to ask that question. I I, I get that we're not Jewish, 
right? I mean, by the biblical sense of the word, we are the Gentiles, but we are God's people. We have been blessed to be a blessing to all peoples on earth, and we have been called to be, a, called to be witnesses to all peoples on earth. So we have to ask this question. The deviation that we are talking about doesn't always require overt rebellion or rebellion. It's, as, we, as we have seen in Paul's time, such deviation just, it could subtly happen. Human traditions can subtly take their root in our lives and replace God's plan, which means that this can happen to anybody even with those with the purest intentions. So I ask you again, have we, ask all of us again, have we, have we, without even realizing, allowed human traditions to become barriers? Another way to put that question is, another way to ask that question is, have we relegated anybody to the metaphorical court of the Gentiles. Let me, it's a, it's a long conversation. It's not an easy conversation to have. And, and, and frankly, it deserves longer than the 25 minutes that I usually, you know, preach for. Um, but it's a conversation that we need to start having today. So today, let me just offer my perspective on the matter just to start the conversation. It is not the answer to the question, but let me just offer my perspective. I think, I believe, inadvertently, albeit, our community may have placed an undue emphasis on the institution of marriage. Let me be clear. I do think that marriage is a blessing from God, and as such, it merits celebration. But when marriage becomes the only norm in a community— it risks overshadowing God's equally important message about singleness. If we value marriage at the expense of singleness, we are risking alienating our single members in our midst. While we rightfully, and we should, we should do this, we, we should and must rightfully include and celebrate our married people in our midst, we must be equally intentional about ensuring that singleness is not sidelined or undervalued. In a similar light, there's always room for improvement in how we include people with disabilities. And these two things are just what come to my head when I think about our little congregation in Brookfield, Wisconsin, when we consider the wider church, that list gets much longer. So let me give you my perspective on it. I think Christians have this tendency to categorize sins, and we even elevate some as unforgivable. In our, in our denomination, recent conversations about human sexuality have highlighted that issue. Um, I have to be careful here, so let me, let me gather my thoughts a little bit. Um, by focusing on certain sins and putting all our time and energy and effort on those matters, 
we risk creating barriers that prevent people from fully experiencing God's forgiveness and grace. While it is vital to acknowledge sin as defined in God's word, it is also just as crucial for us to continue to proclaim that the gospel applies to everybody who seeks God in repentance. There is imbalance in our midst. Furthermore, as a person of color, we just simply cannot overlook the racial dynamics that exist in the wider church. While we may not exclude anybody based on their race or ethnicity, Sunday still remains to be the most segregated day in Christian America. Still the case. Despite the vivid picture that we see in Revelation 7, where all peoples from different tribes, nations, tongues come together to worship God, our reality on Sunday is deeply influenced by our deep-rooted traditions. They're not quite biblical. We have fallen short of that biblical ideal. It highlights the substantial work that we still have to address. And I'm not trying to guilt trip anybody. I want to make that very clear. I'm I'm not trying to guilt trip anybody. My point is that human traditions, even those that that we hold dear, um, they can overshadow God's inclusive will for his people. They can create barriers that keep certain people at bay. They can turn anybody or any community into an exclusive community or individuals that we, frankly, don't want to be. As witnesses for the King, King Jesus, we have been called to challenge these human traditions. We have been called to dismantle these barriers. We have been called to join Paul rather than the angry crowd screaming at him. Whether we have mirrored Paul or the crowd in our lives, the good news here is that even Paul, this fervent defender of God's inclusive message, wasn't always that person. He was at one point entrenched in the deep-rooted ethnocentric Jewish traditions that excluded all who were not Jewish. So this begs the question, how did Paul transition from preaching, defending, and living out these unbiblical human traditions to becoming a fervent witness and powerful advocate for King Jesus and his message of inclusive love? The profound yet obvious answer is that Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. However, it is crucial for us to note that Paul doesn't frame his transformation as a singular event. Paul met Jesus on the road, but that transformation continued. It was a journey. When he saw the light, 
he wasn't given a new vision on the road to Damascus. No, it only, the light only blinded Paul. Fortunately for him and for, for all of us, his eyesight was restored later, but he was in Damascus, not on the road to Damascus. And more importantly for all of us, with his new eyesight came a new spiritual vision, a call to be a witness to all people, not just certain groups of people. And that spiritual vision was later redefined. Now, this time in Jerusalem, in a vision, in a trance, Paul saw that his vision called him to a specific group. He was called to be a witness among the Gentiles. What I'm trying to tell us, tell you, is that Paul's transformation was a process, an ongoing journey of aligning his life with God's will for him. This change was not instantaneous, but unfolded over time. God continued to reveal himself and his will to Paul, extending well beyond the initial encounter on the road to Damascus. And along this journey, God lit up a new zeal in Paul's heart. And as a result, the man who was once deeply entrenched in this exclusive ethnocentric tradition became a fervent witness of the inclusive, loving king and his inclusive and loving message. Being a witness for the king and dismantling all these human traditions and barriers is not an easy task. It requires a real transformation of the heart. And such transformation, whether individual or collective, is a process of becoming an ongoing journey of aligning and realigning our lives with God's will. And understanding God's will goes beyond a singular event. It goes beyond a singular encounter with Jesus Christ. It is what is necessary for that transformation is ongoing revelation that God brings to us. And the primary source of such revelations is the Word of God, the living Word of God. It underscores the vital importance of the Bible in our lives, especially for our witnessing. Continually immersing immersing ourselves in His Word is essential, not as a one-time singular event, but as a repeated event lifelong practice, lifelong spiritual discipline. Believing that we no longer need to engage with Scripture because we read it once, or that because we studied at BCS or at a Sunday school class, that is a dangerous thought. Unless we keep going back to Scripture, human traditions will take root in our lives. They will replace God's will, and they will create barriers keeping certain people at bay. That is not what we are called to do. That spirit of exclusion is in direct opposition of the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's not what the gospel message is all about. 
And such opposition was evident in the backdrop of Acts 22. The situation that Paul faced wasn't just about theological differences. It was a barrier that was both theological and physical, as we saw in the temple structure. It literally divided Gentiles and Jews. But Paul, as a witness for the king, totally rejected that exclusive, unbiblical human tradition. Earlier, I told you that I wondered about why Paul had to go back to Jerusalem instead of advancing the gospel to the ends of the earth. Perhaps part of that divine guidance was for him to stand in that temple that day to reject that human tradition and call God's people back to Scripture. And now I wonder if that is the same call that God is extending to all of us this morning to reject human traditions and go back, come back to God's Word. And isn't that the cornerstone of the Reformed faith? Right? Isn't that what Reformed faith is all about? Going back to Scripture? The Reformation... It was led by figures like Luther and Calvin. And it was all about challenging the church that was entrenched in human traditions to come back to God's word. Their call to return to scripture lit up a new zeal among God's people. And when they returned, they started dismantling barriers that existed within the church. This pivotal movement marked the genesis of our Reformed tradition. But here is the important thing. Even the Reformed tradition, after all, is a tradition. Unless we keep going back to Scripture, human traditions will take root. Even in this tradition, they will replace God's will for His people, and they will create barriers keeping people at bay from joining this church being part of this community, being welcomed, being known and being loved by this community and in this community. We need to dismantle human traditions. And our own denominational history bears witness to this. In the early early 20th century, our missions to the Navajo people was heavily influenced by this doctrine of Christian discovery. It was a doctrine that was a colonialist in nature, and it embodied um, exclusive attitude. Let's just say that. The doctrine prioritized white dominant culture, relegated all other cultures to this metaphorical court of the Gentiles, and enforced cultural assimilation in the name of Christ. That is part of our history. Thankfully, our denomination had faithful witnesses calling, to, calling for a return to Scripture. It, they urged the denomination to go back to Scripture, go back to the inclusive message of God. That's what happened in our denomination. They, those people led the denomination back to realigning itself with the beautiful diversity within God's creation. 
And that's a real victory in our church history. And we have many victories like that in history. However, the work is not done. Even last summer, I recall, I was part of a theological discussion where a Korean pastor's perspective on a discussion matter was dismissed as an entry-level theology by a white pastor. Um, if, just in case you're wondering, I wasn't that pastor. Um, but the undertone was that non-white theology was inferior to white theology. I don't want to get into all the details, but I will make my confession. I failed to be a witness in that moment. I failed to be a witness in that moment. I should have said something. But I was afraid. And my silence allowed um, her power to keep that Korean pastor at a distance. Such incidents, unfortunately, are not uncommon in the church today. Once again, I'm not trying to guilt trip anybody. But I do pray for a new spiritual vision. For us to see that there is so much dismantling that we still have to do today. The good news, however, is that we have already met Christ. We've already had our encounter on our own road to Damascus. We are already on a journey of becoming witnesses for the king. But our journey must continue. Our journey must continue to bring us back to scripture over and over and over. When God's people, whether individually or collectively, return to God's word, God will light up a new zeal in our hearts. It will move us from simply just reading. When we immerse ourselves in Scripture over and over continually as a lifelong practice, it will move us from just simply reading Scripture to being transformed by Scripture. It will renew our passion and strength. It will light up a new zeal among us so that we may continue to dismantle those barriers and be witnesses for the king and his inclusive kingdom. Last night as I was prepping for this sermon, it dawned on me that it was going to be the first sermon of the year. Um, I don't know why Peter did that, but I'm sure he had his good biblical reasons. I'm sure it didn't come from his human tradition. Um, All jokes aside, I will close with this reminder. Whether in 2024 or beyond, our calling remains the same. And it is clear. We need to continue to align and realign ourselves with God's will revealed to us in Scripture. That's our calling. This transformation that we talk about, I mean, we hear that word quite often. It is more than a singular event. It's a continuous walk with Christ. And along this journey, we will be challenged. It will be difficult, but it is a good challenge. We will be challenged to identify 
those human traditions and barriers that keep certain people at bay from joining this body of love, joy, and peace. We need to continue our journey to dismantle those barriers that exist in us, in our church, and in our world today so that more people may come to fully experience the love of our King, the inclusive love of our King. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us back to Scripture this morning. Your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path, guiding us in your truth and wisdom. Lord, we acknowledge and repent for the times that we have unknowingly or knowingly upheld and participated in unbiblical human traditions rather than witnessing to your inclusive kingship and working to dismantle these barriers. Forgive us for those moments that we have allowed our actions and attitudes to create barriers within your church and within your world. As we continue on this transformative journey, we ask for your strength and guidance. Light up a new zeal and passion for your truth and love. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us to discern and dismantle the barriers that separate us from your vision for your people. Empower us to be true witnesses of your inclusive kingdom, reflecting the expansive love of Christ in all that we do. And in his name we pray. Amen.